Well, please have your Bibles open to First Peter, Peter's first epistle, and uh, open it to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Now, we really are covering this one main thought from Peter that stretches back to verse 11, and it goes really all the way to the end of the chapter. And we've titled this, Censoring Critics, Captivating Converts. And by that we mean getting their attention. Getting their attention, making them see what's really essential about the gospel. And we say, when we say getting their attention, we mean long enough that the Lord might convict them and bring them to faith in Christ. You see, it's not just a message to be shared. It is a message that has life. It is a message that breathes out, that has flesh and power. Christianity isn't full of bling and sparkle. And I'll tell you this, throughout the history, whenever it is, it always goes a bad or wrong direction. It is better to use the words Jesus used, life, as opposed to powerless and death. Now to really get Peter's argument here, you have to latch on to some key thoughts, some key words really that I'd like to draw your attention to. Notice in verse 11, lusts which wage war against the soul. Romans 13, he tells us that instead of making a plan for lust, we should make a plan to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that tells me is where the lust has waged a war against the soul, we need to wage a war against the lust. Christian living is more like a battlefield than a journey. And I think sometimes we maybe let ourselves think of Christian living more like a journey. As though we're just kind of hiking. We're out there just kind of making our trek through. I think the more we think of Christianity like that, the more we think of Christianity we think of it more like a journey as though we're, as though Christian things that are in the Bible or things about Christian living are just interesting. The Lord did not make everything and then come down to this earth and then be crucified and then rise again so that we might come to the conclusion that Christianity is interesting. He wanted us to come to the conclusion, oh, wait a minute. This is war. This is a battle. And we walk on a battlefield. Another key thing to note is our relationship to the world. 
We have a relationship to it in verses 11 through 12. We have a relationship in it in verses 13 to 17. And then we have a relationship before it in verses 18, really all the way to the very end, but 18 through 21. And if we put everything together that we just said, there will always be friction because of that. Always conflict because of that. In other words, it's not enough for us to just say, oh, Christianity is having a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't quite say it like it really says it in the Bible when you say it that way. No, no, no. Christianity is having a wrestling match. It's having a fight. That kind of relationship. And if it's not wrestling with the world, then oftentimes we could be like Jonah where we're running away and doing our own thing. And if you belong to the Lord, he's always going to send the fish after you. There will always be friction because of this waged war. Always conflict. Now why is that? Ephesians 2, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, according to that verse, we used to walk according to the path and direction this world was going, okay? It's course. He calls it a course there in Ephesians 2.2. And so, when you have a course, it's something that is uh, that has a pathway. Somebody has made that pathway, and that pathway leads somewhere. Again, it's not just an aimless journey out there to find yourself. It actually goes somewhere. It actually has a, a swath, a, a, a path, a, a direction. The world has a course. Where did the world get its course from? According to verse 2 of Ephesians 2, Satan. Colossians 1 says, when God saved us, he took us out of the world system, out of its course, out of its current, its undercurrent. Why is it important then that God do that? And if we are taken out of it, why do we go back into it? Back to 1 Peter 2.12. Why would he want us to be saved out of the world and then to be plopped back into it? Here's why. Here's, here it is. First Peter 2.12 So that they, that is those unbelievers that are a part of that world, can observe your deeds and glorify God 
in the day of visitation when the Lord comes to them and saves them. When he visits them with salvation. Now, once God saved us, though, it triggered a conflict. When he saved us, it triggered a battle. Did you know that? Almost as though to alert certain people in a certain system, there's another one. Just be mindful. There's one right there. triggered this great battle. Now, is that surprising? It's not surprising that Christianity is involved in a great battle. Genesis 3, remember what God said in verse 15, the seed will crush the head of Satan. Satan will bruise the heel. And in that, he talks about two seeds. There's the seed of the evil one, and there is the seed to come from the woman Now, by telling us that the seed of the woman, that is Jesus, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that is Satan, it tells us that there will be this conflict and battle and war from this day on between God and Satan. In fact, if you want to do a study, when you next time read through the entire Old Testament, read it with that in mind. And just mark or chart all the places you see this battle being referred to. Like, for example, in Daniel 9, he speaks. And, and, and then in Daniel 11 and 12, he speaks of this battle that is taking place all the time. The war waged, it says there, and I think it's Daniel chapter 10, with regards to Michael, the archangel, involved in this. It is between those that belong to God and those that belong to the devil. And what Ephesians 2 tells us then is that this world as a system belongs to the devil. It is not that hard to see it. There's a course for it and it is the devil's job to make sure all unbelievers stay on that course. And if you are a believer that you be lured to go back to that course. And that the lines get blurred. You see this battle talk all through Scripture. And the battle lines are God's side and the devil's side. God's kingdom, the church, spirit-dwelt followers of Christ, and then you have the other side, which is the world. I want you to really feel this and get a sense of this, a flavor of this. So let me take you through some some thought, more thoughts here in, in Scripture. And, and I trust that this is going to really help you as we as I make a real tie into what we're studying in First Peter. Now, we were just in the Gospel of John for flock uh, groups. and uh, This last week we were in John 14, and this coming week will be in chapter 15. 
Jesus is talking to believers, of course. He's talking to uh, the disciples, but in talking to them, he's really making some statements about any Christian. When he says this, John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. In other words, the world would love you. If only you would be like it, it would love you. Put its arms around you, say welcome in, welcome to the club. You're one of us. Jesus told his men, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. You can see it. It's in that word hate. What do they hate? They hate Christ in you. So how do you know Christ is in a person? Because that person walks and talks like Jesus. There is friction, there is struggle, there is pressure from the world against you because you just won't conform to its system. Now you move on to John chapter 16 and you have the same thing. Verse 2, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And that is just unbelievable. I want you to understand what he's saying here. These are religious people wanting to kill the Christ followers. Let me say it a different way. These are people that claim to love God killing people that claim to love God. See? What a, what a weird thing. And he says that's what's going to happen. That's market. That's the history of Christianity. Some of the strongest opposition against the true church, against Christian living, against believers, has come in the name of God. She's called Bloody Mary, 1555. She passed an edict calling for the elimination, the termination of those people that hold to certain views about Christ. What views about Christ? Well, any view that was not Catholic. The reason why she's called Bloody Mary is because she endorsed and opened up a bloody bath of killing Christians in the name of God. Now, what would make them want to do that? Genesis 3. 1 John 3, Satan's seed, and he's the one that has set the course of this world. 
And so we go into this world, and you do that, and you can expect pushback, right? Now, what is Satan's strategy in using the world against Christians? I'll give it to you. Here it is. To get believers associated with being Christ followers, to get the Christ followers to live like the world. To act like it, to talk like it, to love what it loves, to have moral standards like it does, to have spiritual standards like it does, to have educational standards like it does. And so morality, our intellect, our approach to life, to be like the world, simply put, to get Christians to fail. To get Christ followers to let the guard down and give in to sin and give in to the flesh. To get them to be immoral, to get them to be, to get angry and yell at others and get them to cheat on taxes and get Christians to lie and to embellish and to stretch the truth. See? That's why Jesus had to tell his men in Matthew 13 the parable about the wheat and the tares when he said, the evil one will come and sow into that ground, that field, tares that look like wheat but are not. In other words, he wants to ruin the testimony of the church. Why does he want to do that? Because he cannot, he can't take away from the word. The Lord won't allow that. So he has to get people that claim to live by that word to confuse that message by living a blurry life. By living lives that look opposite of that. How can he do that? Get them instead of getting mastery over lusts to give in to the flesh. Get them instead of submitting to the governing authorities to rebel. Get them instead of submitting to their bosses to fight their bosses. Make it so that you have the preaching of the gospel, but not the transforming work of the gospel to change lives. That is what the course of this world looks like. And I think sometimes... We go into the world and we don't realize that's what we're that's what we're in. That's what makes this feel like such a conflict and a battle and and why there's so much tension and if it's not on the outside it's very much in our hearts. Now if you if you look throughout first Peter, by the way. What you realize is that's the underlying thing he says at every corner. I mean every corner. It really 
makes it pretty clear this is this is the main message he has. God saves us and transforms us by his grace so that it's not just our message that shines out, but his grace through our lives. And he is calling for that at every turn in First Peter. God does that. He saves and transforms us by his grace so that it's not just our message that shines out, but his grace through our godly lives. You see, an ungodly life is a sort of um, anti-evangelism. And that's what Satan is after. He, he, if he can get us to think how we live doesn't matter, then he wins. That's what I mean by anti-evangelism. Anti-evangelism is convincing people that, or Christians, that how you live doesn't matter. Peter fights that. Peter makes war at that level. Now, I've said a lot of things. I need to now start to show you things. So, notice what Peter says. Chapter 1, verse 7. A faith more precious than gold, tested by fire. Ooh, tested by fire tells me that he saved us and he will allow our faith to be blasted by fire. Why? so that it can be shown that it's precious in what it's attached to. In chapter 1, verse 14, Obedient children, not conform to the former lusts. Be holy in all your behavior. Chapter 2, verse 1, Putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, to crave the word and grow. Chapter 3, verse 13. Prove zealous for what is good. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always ready to make a defense. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Chapter 4, verse 3. Time, or, time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. What's that? A course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, excesses of dissipation. And when you don't do those things, he says, they malign you. They make fun of you. What, why are they make, you ever wonder, why do they make fun of us? Because they're trying to get you to... Stop being outside of the course. Get back in line on the course. Now on and on Peter goes. What's his his point then in this letter? How you live matters. It's what the Lord uses for evangelism in the lives of the lost. And so what is Satan's work? to make us think it doesn't matter. And so you get the chapter 2, verse 11. Take a look at it. 
abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And then chapter 12, or excuse me, then verse 12, keep your behavior excellent so that the ones that observe that behavior may become God glorifiers when he visits them in salvation. Peter is saying, God uses your life as evangelism with the message. And so that if we get the thought that it's just the message, who really cares how you live, you're wrong. Or if you have the thought that, you know, I'm going to try to live as good as I can, but I'm not going to open my mouth to share the gospel with anyone, you're wrong. It's both. Verse 15 Such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. They run out of things to say against the gospel, and then you know what they do? They they just receive it. They realize the only thing that their critical views do is nothing but keep you following Christ. Now I say that because of where, of what we're going to learn. There is a fierce battle that goes on in the workplace. And our natural reaction is to fight it. It is to defend ourselves. It is to cry, hey, what about equal rights? What about my rights? Don't I deserve the same treatment as the other guy? Don't I deserve the same chance? By the way, Peter even ends this letter, if you want to take a peek at it, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, the same way. How you live matters. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Who does he devour? The ones that think how you live doesn't matter. God uses a holy life with the gospel to save people. That's how he does it. Well, where does Satan do his work? He does it in all kinds of places. He does it in the home, right? If you could get your home to be inconsistent. But he also does it in the workplace. In the overarching thing you could say, he does his work in, with the world, the course of this world. Now, here is the, the problem that we are all facing. Where does Jesus send his disciples, you and me? John seventeen eighteen. Listen to this. Jesus prayed, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. There's the problem. The world has a course. The course is set by Satan. Jesus says, I want to use you to reach the lost. I am sending you into to that called the world. I want you to go into it 
and I want you to have impact. Say, how do I do it? Live holy lives. Peter picks up up on that and he says, we live holy lives in three arenas and in three ways. First, as strangers to the world, verses 11 to 12. Secondly, as citizens in the world, verses 13 to 17, where we submit to the governing authorities. And that becomes the statement of our holiness, submission, right? And then third, as servants or slaves, verses 18 to 21, before the world. And our statement is the same, submission. And by slave, Peter has in mind the workplace. God has us in the workplace. He ordains to work his grace into our lives. So we ask the question there in your notes. What does God's grace look like in the workplace? Submission. Now we're talking about being God's kind of servant before the world. And so Peter, in verses 11 to 12, he moves from personal lives to governing authorities and then you could say to our own regional authority where where we're under bosses. What your life looks like there before the local authority, your boss. He wants you to live a kind of life that censors the critics in that workplace. Why? So God can save some of them. Now what can you do in the workplace to have gospel impact? You need to have a commitment to submission. Peter shapes that in three ways. So let's look at that there in your notes as we work our way through. Point number one, the exhortation for submission. Now we've this is a little bit by way of reminder, but I'm, hope, I'm hoping to bring out some new stuff for you here. But let's look at this here. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, that, that's the exhortation. And I know, I understand. You throw out that word submission, and it does, it, for all of us, it's nails to a chalkboard. Okay? Say, so, ooh, I don't think I love that word. Can we use a different word? Nope. That's his word. That's our Lord's word for us. Servants, be submissive to your masters. It's a command, not a suggestion. Servants, the word servants means house slaves. Those that work there in the home, it's not a job to sign up for, but one where you were owned. By the way, Scripture doesn't spend any time trying to release slaves. You say, what about Egypt? Right? What about Philemon? That's my kind of counter to that. So what about Philemon? Paul sent Philemon back to, or excuse me, sent Onesimus back to Philemon. Egypt was a massive illustration by God on spiritual redemption, by the way. God used actual slavery to demonstrate his power to redeem the Israelites. Listen, because they were his people. 
slaves of God. Did you know that? That he never released them from slavery? He just exchanged it. Just transferred it. Slaves of God. So they didn't stop being slaves. It just got transferred. And we made the point that with all the talk about equal rights, slavery has sort of entered this category. But scripture doesn't look to establish equal rights. That's a state thing. That's a government thing, but it's, it's not a spiritual matter. Look at almost every New Testament letter, and there's usually a section where the writer addresses the masters or the slaves. Have you noticed that? 80% of the church body were slaves of some kind, and so they address them not in a social way, but a spiritual way. That's the focus. That's what matters. First Corinthians 7, Paul says, If you can become free, then great. But if not, remain in that condition in which you were called. If a slave, remain there. See. Now the question they would be asking is, now that I'm a Christian, I'm free, right? I mean, I can get out of this thing. Peter... Paul, I mean, as they're saying, can I stop being a slave because I'm a Christian? Peter and Paul say, no. Just submit to your master. To your boss. He says it doesn't matter what what your earthly employer is like. Just like we made the point with the governing authorities, it doesn't matter what the government is. In this situation, similar. It doesn't really matter what your employment situation is like. Verse 18, he says, here's what matters. Do it with all respect. And that phrase, phobia, means with all fear. Fearing fearing God. By the way, when he says with all fear, it means fearing God. It doesn't mean fearing your boss. So he said, well, why, did, why does he bring that into the deal here, fearing God? Because God put that boss there as your boss. You ever thought of it maybe that way? The very boss that you have, he gave to you because he wanted you to have that for this reason. You might learn what it is like to be submissive. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your boss is like. You say, are you sure? Look at verse 18. Not only to those who are good and gentle, we all want those kind, but also to those who are unreasonable. Scolios is the Greek word here. Those that are bent, those that are crooked, submit to those kind. It's not about equal rights. It's about having a testimony of grace. testimony that points to God's grace as a saving God through Jesus. Now that's way more important than any kind of strike that you could make or battle that you might make for your rights. How you live then connects to what you say at that point. See, Colossians 
4, verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And he's telling these Christian bosses, don't forget, you're a slave too. A slave of Christ. What should a slave focus on? Verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be seasoned. Always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying the same thing. That's your boundary in the workplace. And the boundary becomes a testimony of God's grace when it comes from a heart that loves Him like 1 Peter 1.8. And that's an attitude, by the way. Submission is an attitude that makes the statement that though you do not see him, you love him. Always with that kind of attitude toward your boss. Never a strike, never a rebellion. And in both Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, 22-4-6, Paul, just like Peter, makes the connection to the work of the gospel through your testimony. He said, well, how do you do it? You do it like Paul says in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. In the sincerity of your heart. You know what that means? You have to mean it. You can't just be going through the motions. People figure it out. Oh, you're trying to be okay here at work, right? And it's written all over your face. Some of us are really good poker you know, faces, you know, and you know, then there are others us to kind of is like, well, how did you guess that I'm not happy, you know? How do you do it? It says in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, as to Christ. You do it like your boss is Jesus. You say, oh man, my boss is anything but like that. Well, maybe you're seeing him or her the wrong way. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. You don't do it just when they see you. You don't do it to gain points in the popular polls. It says, but as slaves of Christ. Not the slave of a human employer, but Jesus. Oh, man. Doing the will of God from the heart. Again, the heart. Render service as to the Lord and not to men. He just keeps repeating these points because he knows how hard it is for us. See, Keep putting Jesus as a watermark behind that boss of yours. And just only see him. Now that brings us to the second shaper of our commitment to submission. Point number two, the end for submission. Verses 19 through 21. And I want to take you down, down to a word that will help you understand why I call this the end for submission. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. This end. For what end? 
What purpose? What's the purpose or motive of our submission? I can give it to you in one word. Grace. Getting grace. Being in a position where you unleash God's grace, sovereign grace, in that workplace, in your life, and through your life. I'm going to show you this. You're going to see it. And you're, you're going to love it. Look at verse 19. It's going to be helpful. For this finds favor. Literally, that word favor is charis, grace. This finds grace. What finds grace? This, demonstrative, points back to a believer's submission to his employer. That submission finds grace. What grace? God's grace. We're talking about submission to that crooked boss. F.B. Meyer commenting on these verses really hits at the core of what I believe Peter is saying. Quote, listen to this. The one message that the Spirit of God had for them and which is so often repeated on these pages may be gathered up in the words, submit, endure, be subject, take it patiently. There is a great restlessness among employees throughout society. Servants giving notice. Young people trying to better themselves. Men changing from situation to situation. As a rule, there is not much gained even in a worldly point of view, from successive changes. It is the steady plodding life which most quickly leads to success and comfort. End quote. The steady plodding life. That doesn't sound very exciting. But boy, does it hit the mark. When's the last time you've looked and evaluated your life as an employee and said, It's a steady, plodding life. And then said to yourself, and that's good. That's good. Just what the Lord wants. You say, ma'am, I want spice. Well, you don't always want spice. You know, boss comes around and says, you're fired, right? That's spicy, but, you know. (laughs) He says, basically, taking things patiently. Taking things patiently will open up the avenue for God's grace. That's what Meyer was saying. That's what Peter is saying. Later on, Meyer goes on to say another way of translating what verses 19 and 20 mean when it says, for this finds favor with God, is this. This is thankworthy. The Greek might bear such a rendering as this, Meyer says. God says, thank you. If in some great house, this is Meyer again, some poor servant, or if in a school some persecuted child will dare, for God's sake, to choke back the passionate outburst of indignation and to endure grief, suffering wrongfully, there is a thrill of delight started through the very heart of God and from the throne of God stoops to say, thank you. The hero explorer may be thanked by his country and his queen, but the weakest and obscurest saint may receive the thanks of the Almighty. 
That's F.B. Meyer. Isn't that exciting? I mean, submission in the workplace with the right, in the right way for the right reasons causes God to say, thank you. That's humbling. I mean, look at the text. Here's a guy, and it says, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. This is a person who endures suffering, okay? It's not a work. They thought the workplace was going to be great. That was going to be an awesome job. Things were going to turn out good. Felt really good about it, and then it becomes sour. You have to endure suffering. You have to endure sorrows. But, in, but this guy here, his conscience is clean about it. In other words, he, ha- he hasn't rebelled. He, uh, he hasn't gone outside of what the master wanted. You did what your boss asked for. And if, and if you know there's no wrongdoing on your part at all, and you suffer, and there's deep sorrow, and it's all unjust what they're bringing to you. It's not fair at all. If you submit to all of that, God says, thank you. God's pleased by that. He likes it. It's what he wants. It's not easy. That's why I call this sovereign grace in the workplace. I mean, it's incredible to think of God being grateful. I mean, we're the ones that should be saying, like in Luke 17, we've only done what we should have done. We've only done our duty. No thanks is needed for that. But the Lord gives it anyway. Literally, the Greek is consciousness of God. What is the consciousness of God? The consciousness of God is an awareness of God's presence. Now think about that. You go to work. Oftentimes you go to work, there's an awareness of a lot of presence, right? So you got the guy that's huffing and puffing and he's not happy about this thing or that thing. You got the other person over here that's complaining, hey, we should be making more. You got this person over here, hey, when's the last time you got a vacation? I haven't had one in forever. You know, I, I think I'm owed this or that. You know, hey, when's the last time you got a compliment for the things that you, you did, right? You're aware of a lot of presence. Here, this is a person who has an awareness of God's presence in the workplace. A.W. Tozer, in The Pursuit of God, said we must always have this God consciousness in our soul. An awareness of his presence. If you belong to him, he has poured his spirit into you. Romans 8, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. When there is an awareness of God's presence, it becomes a massive motive to submit to your boss. You know what Peter is saying? If you're struggling to submit to your boss, get clear about the purpose. Do it for the thank you from the Lord. Sometimes it's, uh, it's hard for us to hear the stories of people that have been beaten as slaves under cruel masters. We hear about the horrors of mistreatment. And it should move all our hearts. Jesus heard about Lazarus dying. 
it says Jesus wept. I mean, he knew that he was going to raise him up, but he still wept. You know, you hate to see death. You hate to see suffering and injustice. But listen, these slaves in Peter's day had no union or laws to protect or help by some group to fight for their rights. Peter said, you get beaten because you belong to the Lord and you're submitting to your boss and you're living a holy life and he lets you have it. God says thank you. Peter is saying is that a situation where a boss is like that should have no bearing on a Christian. Unflinched, unmoved, doesn't even move the meter, doesn't change the tide one bit. Now there's a time when taking it patiently doesn't give God thanks. And there's a time when it does. I mean, look at verse 20. You'll see it. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What credit, what thanks should there be if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? I mean, you can't sin and expect God to say thank you. I mean, you can't bomb an abortion clinic and think God's going to thank you for that. No, you can't join the strike and think God's going to be pleased with this. You can't refuse to do what the boss says out of protest to him as an unfit boss. There's no thank you for that. And listen, the guy that gets himself into that kind of situation deserves it. Not the thank you, but the thing that comes to him, the harsh treatment. Then you have the positive response guy. Look at verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You've obeyed the Lord, okay? You've... um, You quietly submitted to your boss and did what he wanted you to do and and then you you patiently endured mistreatment. This finds grace from God. This gets a, a thank you from the God of the universe who sees all. You remember Jesus in Mark 14, they brought Jesus before the whole Jewish council and gave all their false accusations. And in verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. In fact, in, I believe it's John's gospel, it might be Luke's gospel, but he gets smacked at that point. And Jesus comes back and says, What wrong did I do for that? You say, Well, It says he was silent. Yeah, he was silent in making a defense to try to get him out of this. His words were just reminding them of their own law. I 
Again, the high priest was questioning him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in doing that, Jesus was quoting Daniel 7.13. Clearly talking about the Messiah. Mark 14.65, they began to spit at him, to beat him with their fists, to mock. And listen, all of that pleased God. You say, are you sure? Read Isaiah 53. God the Father said thank you to the Son oh why because he submitted to it all and it was God's will Hebrews 10 he did it for the Father he did it to be our Redeemer. Hebrews 12 says, He endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He did it for you too. How is Jesus' submission a pleasing to God? I mean, how is our submission a pleasing to God? John MacArthur says it this way, quote, it pleases God to see us accept the earthly difficulty with complete faith in Him. That is a testimony beyond all testimonies. You want to have a testimony at work? That's how. End quote. Beloved, we're talking about the severe treatment for following Christ. Only only a true believer could do it. Only a true believer could receive this kind of abuse and stick with it. If you think I'm blowing this out of proportion, just go over to 1 Peter 4.14 and 16. You can see it for yourself. You can go to 1 Peter 5.10. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And you know, all Peter is doing, he's remembering what his Lord Jesus told him in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. You remember that? Beatitude. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. So how can a person live like this? I mean, you have to have an eternal view. That's how. You have to get a a heavenly mindset, not an earthly one. I mean, we are way too attached to this earth, beloved. You say, but is it God's purpose to submit to cruel treatment? Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. That word call is the same word earlier used in chapter 2, verse 9, when he talked, when it says he's called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, 
Peter uses the word called or calling all the time to talk about salvation. In other words, he saved us for this purpose. You were called into salvation and right into a workplace where you would submit to whatever happens, good or bad, to be a testimony of his grace. See? So what is the end for submission in the workplace? To take things patiently. Anything from your boss. You say, how long? Well, what's the word endurance mean? It gets its meaning the longer you're in that place. But for some of us, we need, we're picture people. I'm, I'm one of those. So I'll give you a picture and you won't forget it. Point number three, the example for submission. Verse 21, here's our example for that kind of submission. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example for you to follow in his steps. Now we're going to see what this means and we'll have to cover this for at least two more weeks to get some depth about this. Philippians 1.29, listen to this. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 of Philippians, he gives Jesus as an example of one who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what did God the Father do when Jesus did that? What was... His response to Jesus' obedience and submission. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him to the glory of God the Father. What's that? That's the Father saying thank you. To the Son. We're called to this. The Son was called to this. We're to follow his example. Jesus was reviled and submitted to it. He said no word back in defense, in retaliation. The word example in this verse, hupogramos, very fascinating word. It was uh, a word used for young ones, young students who were learning to write. And what you would do is you would place the sheet of paper over the grammar letters and you trace. You copy it. Jesus is our copy. And we're all in grammar school. We're the children. He was slandered. He suffered. He was silent. What did the Father do in response? He exalted Christ and then saved sinners. That's it. That's what he's trying to do with you and I in the workplace. And yet we complain. And yet we 
Try to defend our rights. Now let's conclude here. What's our takeaway from a message like that? I think it's pretty obvious. Stop fighting with your boss. Stop fighting with authority. Stop fighting for your rights. Stop being an equal rights person. Understand every humble act of submission in the workplace becomes another piece that God uses in evangelism in that workplace to resonate next to the gospel that you share. Every time you take things in life patiently, you go this direction. And the Lord uses it all to censor the critics and captivate the converts. And that is uh, exciting to think about that. that you, can, you and I can have that kind of impact on the lost right there in the workplace. Well, we definitely need His sovereign grace working through us in the workplace so that we can be that because it is not easy. That's why our Lord Jesus is used at this point as our example. Let's pray. Father, we uh, have addressed some things that are not easy to hear and talk about and pray, Lord, that you would just open our minds and hearts by the Holy Spirit to exactly what you want us to apply, whether it's in our own home, whether it's in the workplace, wherever it is. And uh, we want to be used, Lord, that others might come to know you. And this is the way. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that, to be committed to that even. We love you. Pray for this in Jesus' name.